So, Phil, did you see the, in Australia during a tennis tournament that they had a deadly snake appear on the court? Yes. <laughs> I know Ro- Rosemary's not here to defend herself, but oh my gosh, she swears to me that when you walk around Australia, you're not going to be attacked by a poisonous snake. And yet, there it is, headline news in the United States, poisonous snake at, ter- at tennis tournament. So it was, it was like the world's most deadly snake. Whatever that snake is, Joel, do you know what that snake is? The world's deadliest snake? It was the second most, and it was like a brown, brown, some kind of pit viper. Brown something. I don't remember what it was. And there it was, right in the middle of this uh, uh, tennis tournament, just sitting there. Alan, you must not watch tennis that often, because when they used to have the tournament in Miami, before they moved it into the Hard Rock Stadium, uh, they used to have like lizards invading the tennis courts and stuff like that. So, yeah. It's it's not uncommon for for that sort of thing to happen. But lizards are nice. Most right. Most of the time, they won't kill you. But in Australia, they totally will. Yeah, and we were watching. Uh, you guys watch uh, the Mike Rowe show? I like Mike Rowe. Dirty Jobs. There you go. And he was milking uh, dangerous spiders, poisonous spiders, and the whole time you got these massive spiders, and on the whole, I'm just watching this thinking. That's what's in Australia. That's what's in Australia. Oh my God. That's what's in Australia. I, I cannot get that out of my head that that's a dangerous place. Even though Rosemary swears to me, it's nice. I'm sure that it is. And, and, and Matthew uh, Stead from, from Ping uh, says the same thing. So we're going to have to go, Joel. I hate to say it, but I'm not going to be the first one to step off the airplane. I'm going to have someone go ahead of me. So my brother lives in Alaska and he told me this one time. He said, you don't have to be the fastest one. You just got to be faster than your buddy. Well, you know, Australia has become a renewable energy center. Of course, Rosemary points out that they're full of solar and they have essentially uh, a renewable energy grid at this point. Um, But the wind industry is growing out there. Uh, There's been a lot of uh, movement out that way. And if I I hope Vestas installs a plant out there. In this episode, we're talking about the uh, advancement of Vestas, where they had a huge project. Um, announcement and expanding their factories in Colorado. So this is going to be interesting because as Phil has pointed out, Vestas is making a move and it is big. So stay tuned. Vestas has received its largest order ever in the U.S. market, 1.1 gigawatts of turbines, which is about 242 turbines of the V163 4.5 megawatt machines that uh, that are going to be built in Colorado for Pattern Energy's Sunzia Wind Project in New Mexico, so right next door to Colorado. The turbines won't have very far to go. It is the largest order onshore for Vestas ever. It includes all the supply, delivery, and commissioning of the turbines, and a, as Vestas has proven out, a multi-year service agreement. Uh, so everybody around Pattern and Vestas is super happy. Remember, Vestas had put some money in, about $40 million, into the, the two factories in Colorado. One's a blade factory, one's a nacelle factory, uh, to expand them for this particular product line. So this is... Uh, Working out for Vesta is quite lovely at the moment, Joel. It, it seems like the 4.5 is going to be a, 
pretty useful machine as the repowering effort and, and new projects are developed in the United States. Yeah, I mean, New Mexico is a fantastic place to put a lot of these out too, right? Because where, where this project is cited at is it's very rural. It's, it's wide open spaces. It's just like a, if you're familiar with looking at West Texas, it's an extension of West Texas, basically. Uh, so these these are some big turbines, right? These are the ones that you see from a, even a long ways away and say, "Wow, that thing is freaking massive." I mean, they're going to have an eighty, you know, or 100, that hundred sixty three meter rotor on them. They're going to have an eighty meter blade or a seventy nine meter blade on them. So they're going to be some big, big, big machines. Uh, but the 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 whole project here is the interesting thing because Sunzia has been that idea of a project has been around for a long time, and that was always kind of focused on. The transmission part of it, right? It was bringing this power from this idea of this development over towards Phoenix, across into Arizona, and to kind of feed that southwestern uh, portion of the United States. And um, to me, I guess it was maybe I wasn't thinking correctly or whatnot. And Sun, they're like, "Hey, Sun Z is good to go." Also, one point one gigawatt turbine order with it. So, uh, congrats to Vestas and and Pattern really for putting this thing together and and finally getting it across the finish line. Phil, this is a big project for Pattern, isn't it? Yeah, it's part of a 3.5 plus gigawatt project. Uh, they're spending $11 billion on the entire thing, including the transmission. Um, also kind of went under the radar uh, last week after Vestas made their announcement was that GE also made their announcement that they're also going to be supplying some turbines. Um, I don't I, actually it's it's funny because I don't know if it's actually for the the rest of it uh the the you know remaining 2.4 gigawatts or not um but there are kind of three phases of this project so it's potential that pattern may also want to um you know or has yet to uh announce and explore a relationship with Siemens Gamesa or Nordex on on that third phase um if that's what they're doing but uh, in the meantime, yeah, this, this entire project is, uh, it's, uh, going to be probably the biggest, um, onshore, you know, multi-phase project outside of China, you know, China, there are places in, uh, there are various deserts there where they're doing something similar. They're setting, setting up just massive, massive arrays of turbines and solar panels and everything. Um, outside of China, this is going to be the, the biggest, uh, onshore project in uh, the certainly the country and and the rest of the world. So, Alan, I want to ask you a question on this one. Of course, we can you know from the armchair we can sit and say, okay, this is going to be a three three and a half gigawatt project. That's crazy, right? The largest single phase installation in the U.S. is about one gigawatt. So this is three times. Of course, it's multi phase, but you know we know that you probably can't turn to Vestas and say, hey, we need. 700 V163s in the next 18 months, they're not going to be able to do it. So we know that you need to probably, like you said, Phil, G get some GE turbines in there, get some Vestas turbines in there. There might even be some other suppliers thrown in there. So we know that that's a, just a reality from the supply chain standpoint. But on an engineering side, what does that do for the project? Holy hell. Uh, it's going to be a big, complicated project, right? Here, here's, here's my concern about this whole project is you're putting all your all your money on the table and you're spinning that wheel uh a lot of these turbines haven't been that well examined right and yeah and new mexico's a tough place that's what worries me 
a lot of lightning, a lot of everything in New Mexico. Uh, the winds are strong, right? That's why they're there. You you gotta wonder uh, if something were to be bad on the turbine, boy, you it, it would just explode. It, this is this this is the Siemens energy problem, right? Man, yeah, I mean it's complicated geographically, right? Because you have mountain mountains to the south in Mexico. You have mountains that subtend the middle of uh, or the western side of this project in the middle of New Mexico. And then you have that hot weather going off to the plains. Like, it's a complicated weather area as well. Strong winds, of course. That's fantastic for the wind industry. We deal with that all the time. But also the tendency for microbursts and hail and really strong convective storms in that area. Yeah, the, the weather there is not great. The winds are good, but the, the, the big storms hit that part of New Mexico. And that worries me. There's just a lot of unknowns here. I would be, feel a lot more comfortable if this ended up in Oklahoma or Kansas or I, even Iowa, some places that we have a better understanding of something this big in New Mexico. I don't know if we've been there before. I do think that the size of this wind farm complex, we'll call it, has the ability to literally like fuel an entire town, right? Like you're going to, if you're going to have 700 some odd massive turbines, like the workforce that's going to be needed, you're going to need a hundred people out there regularly working on the thing that's going to, that are going to be permanent residents uh, of this area, which is a very rural area. New Mexico is challenged for, for rural development and, uh, and job growth. So this is, uh, it's going to be a boon to that, that corner. To Phil, does this make sense in terms of the, the proximity? Is that part of it, of the Vestas production plants being pretty close? And the tower plants are right there in Pueblo, I'm assuming. So they're not very far from the border of New Mexico. Is it, is it a closeness uh, that, that's playing into the to the part of this transaction that, that the factory's right up the street? Part of it, certainly. Um, and keep in mind that Vestas obviously sold the, the tower manufacturing to CS Wind, and CS Wind actually just uh, released some new projections, financial projections, based on presumably the fact that they're getting, you know, a lot of these uh, and other uh, of the Vestas turbine orders um, Vestas now has, I believe, something on the order of three to three and a half or 3.6 gigawatts worth of uh, V163 orders now globally, um, which is great for that platform. Uh, although, like you say, I mean, it, part of it's kind of unproven. Certainly the blade is, is kind of a new blade, uh, so to speak. It's based on their, their pre-existing technology, but it, it's not a product that's been out there. GE, my understanding is that they're going to be using the 2.8 uh, 127s and uh, 2.3 to 2.5 116s. Um, so, you know, nothing that hasn't been uh, previously experienced there. Um, again, the question is, would would a company like Pattern Energy take a punt on the Nordex, you know, N155 or N163? Or, you know, are they going to, I don't know what happens with Siemens Gamesa, if they're going to be prepared to start supplying turbines now that we're in 2024. Happy New Year, everybody. Um, you know, we're, are, are, is Siemens Gamesa going to start selling and supplying turbines again this year for delivery later this year and into next year, which is, you know, that project's going to be under construction for a while. <laughs> so they got a lot to, they got a lot to build. Phil, there, there's two pieces to this that I'm trying to to learn about. One is how fast is Vestas going to try to produce those turbines? Are they really going to try to ramp up these factories with the $40 million they've invested in them to then 
rapidly turn around these these turbines, or they can try to spread it out. One, two, Siemens is in trouble if they're not able to get into some of these bigger projects, particularly onshore, which is a strength for them, uh, or has been historically. Does Vestas, which is looking very aggressive at the moment, really push Siemens out of the U.S. market or try to, and then shove their way into that broader sort of North American, South American marketplace? If that ha- if the latter happens, Alan, the, what happens is Nordex basically takes over the number three spot in terms of uh, U.S. Uh, wind turbine OEMs. So that would be interesting, but Nordex doesn't have necessarily as competitive of a product offering. Uh, you know, it's it, it, look at whatever metric you want. The, you know, the megawatt hours produced, the capacity factors, the you know, and some of it is it, they're unfortunately disadvantaged by not having access to the best project sites, so they can't really shine. Um, there's nothing necessarily inherently wrong with the N149 or the N155 or 163 product platform. It's actually a pretty solid product. Um, but again, that's, that's part of the issue is they, they've never really, they've never, you know, even if, even if Vestas starts taking business away from Siemens and orders away from Siemens Gamesa, does that necessarily allow somebody like Nordex to flourish or does it open up? Is it just going to be a, a knockdown dragout between you know GE and Vestas, and then you know a bunch of other small players also want to domesticate production in the United States? Does this open the door for them if they're you know willing to come in and, and spend money? So that's it's a complicated that that's a very complicated thing. The other aspect of this, going back to your earlier question, was yes, the proximity for the Vestas factories kind of plays into um, th- them getting the supply, but also, you know, with these um, 45X manufacturing tax credits that are providing a uh, d- kind of domestic content bonus, shall we say, for, um, you know, sor- domestic sourcing of some of the components, that's going to do uh, a lot of good things, both for Vestas and for Pattern. Uh, because they're going to be getting, you know, uh, you know, a, a pretty, you know, I mean, you're you're talking about uh, what about uh, five hundred and fifty thousand dollars per turbine um, if they domestically source all the components that they can under that uh, that tax credit program. So that's a that's a pretty decent chunk of the the cost of the turbine. I want to tie in the Nordex piece because they did. Signed that extension with Eris down in Brazil to make blades down there. And I'm wondering if that's their fallback position is just does it crank up Eris to make blades if they want to start going after some Siemens projects? There is they have enough orders in Brazil and in adjacent markets in South America that the Eris thing is good. The question is, will Eris come because Eris has been talking about wanting to come to the US now that we have this you know, proposed regulations for the 45X manufacturing tax credit. I wonder if that doesn't, I mean, I think we're going to see, like, for instance, I was mentioning this before off air, like companies like NGC, um, you know, with, with making gearboxes in China, anybody that GE, Vestas, 
Siemens Gamesa or Nordex is using that's a foreign company is going to want or probably need to domesticate some of their production capacity in the U.S. so that these companies can take advantage of it. Because one of the provisions of this is that you can't just, you know, import foreign-made goods and just assemble it. That doesn't qualify fully for that bonus uh, tax credit. So the question here is, does Eris, you know, does this relationship that Nordex and Eris have in Brazil, does that then help facilitate um, the relocation of Eris to, you know, set up a factory in the U.S.? Either way, I think that there's an interesting play here. Like, Phil, you're talking, we're talking about market share with Siemens and all these different things. In the last, like, I don't know, man, two weeks up until the end of the year, it was like, Vestas watching LinkedIn, it was like Vestas had held all of their cards right until the end of the year. And they were like, order for 400 gigawatts, order for 1.1, you know, or 400 megawatt. Boom, 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 boom. They, they do that, though. They, they always announce like all their orders in bulk kind of at the end of every quarter, financial quarter. But this was actually they so they announced a total of 17 gigawatts, but it wasn't all firm orders. It was something like. 12.8 gigawatts of firm orders and then the rest of it was all like uh preferred supplier and conditional orders so you know i mean but it was still it's a huge order haul and i mean you know again with with some degree of certainty again they haven't finalized these uh 45x tax credit rules in the u.s and we don't know what the profitability of some of these orders is for places in South Korea and throughout Europe with some of these offshore orders. But, I mean, this is, it's still a big deal. Like, that's, that's a lot of orders to be able to announce in one quarter. And if you go back to November, you know, the CEO was basically hinting at the fact that they were going to drop all these orders and, and it was going to be a big end of the year. So... You know, and it turned out to be the interesting take from this whole thing that we've been talking about here for the last 10 minutes is the fact that the IRA bill as designed a year and a half ago is starting to do its job. Is it or the Treasury Department doing it? Well, to be to be to be like like Phil is saying, like if you're using an NGC type deer box or someone from China, like there it's will force them to be competitive. It'll force them to do some manufacturing in the United States. That was the point of the IRA bill in general. Yeah, I, I'm still a little dubious because the time frame is too short. Right? So if you're, you're trying to build a factory in the United States and get up and running, that's going to take two years minimum, especially for something that's complicated as NGC. Right? So the, the, the chances of that happening, I think, are small. It's going to be those that already have factories in place, like Vestas or GE, that could easily spool up something pretty quick. Yes and no, because like I mentioned before, if they're already qualified for the 48C manufacturing tax credit from a previous PTC authorization, they can't double dip on the 45X. So this, the 45X and the IRA bill is intended to facilitate new build factories in the United States. The question though is, you know, there, so these, these credits go until 2030 at the current rates that they have. And it again, it works out to be about $120,000 per megawatt for an onshore turbine, $140,000 per megawatt for an fixed bottom offshore turbine, and $160,000 per megawatt for a floating offshore turbine. However, 
as Alan just mentioned, you're you're talking about a scenario where it's going to take, I'll, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and say 18 months, but you're talking about a time frame where you're not even really able to pull the trigger because they, they took so much time to clarify these regulations and they're still not even finalized yet. Now we're losing opportunity and we're losing momentum on being able to take advantage of the domestication of the, the uh, manufacturing facilities. The, the other question is, if this only really runs out to 2030 and then starts ramping down, and by 2032, the, the 45X tax credits go away, how many companies are going to be able to secure enough of an order book to be able to justify, you know, the, the factory investment? Because you're talking about, I mean, if you're, if you're trying to do a, if you're a gearbox vendor like NGC, and you're trying to domesticate production of, you know, everything that, that, uh, GE is going to need from you and, and keep in mind that NGC is not their only vendor, but I mean, you're going to, you're going to need at least, you know, like three gigawatts worth of orders to be able to pull the trigger on what is going to end up being like a 300 to $400 million factory, give or take. That's, that's the problem. But if somebody's looking to put us content in, I, I do know of a company that's based in the United States that manufactures parts for wind energy. That'd be WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. We're in Massachusetts and we make the thing here. That's right. Right? Someone can actually pick up the phone and call us because we're it. We're probably one of the few that actually has a, a vast majority. I wouldn't say 100%, but it's damn close to it. U.S. content. So we're easy. I know we're only we're small, but still. That's a good plug. Come on, Phil. Does it include Intel Store too? We we provide digital services any anywhere in the world. Doesn't that count? Phil is manufacturing insights from the data. Hey, Uptime listeners. We know how difficult it is to keep track of the wind industry. That's why we read PES Wind Magazine. PES Wind doesn't summarize the news. It digs into the tough issues. And PES Wind is written by the experts, so you can get the in-depth info you need. Check out the wind industry's leading trade publication, PES Wind at PESWind.com. So one of the things I talk about on the podcast fairly regularly is offshore wind operations because it's kind of a mystery, right? If you're um, looking at an onshore wind farm or if you've been in oil and gas, you've been in construction industry, you've seen people build highways. These are massive infrastructure projects, but you see what's going on. You see a dozer driving or a surveyor out there or some people moving drainage stuff around. You can see all of that. But when you get to offshore wind, you can't see any of that. You see a couple of vessels on the surface driving around, but you cannot see anything that's going on underneath them. And that's where all the work is happening. So Video Ray is a, is a part of that solution. Now, they're in PES Wind Magazine this, uh, this quarter talking about off, offshore wind inspections. Now, they don't just do inspections with their equipment on the, on the operation side. They do it during development, during construction, and during operations. So... Think of what a video ray offers as a solution, being a basically a drone that you see in the air. Again, I'm trying to relate it to something everybody's seen, uh, except for much more expensive and something that swims and <laughs> swims subsea. So uh, the it's it's not I'm not going to say it's trivial to build a drone, but it's not super difficult. The concepts are pretty easy. Uh, flying in air and communications and positioning is fairly easy compared to subsea, because when you go subsea, you cannot communicate very well. 
you cannot position very well. Cameras are hard to use because uh, contrary to popular belief, not everything subsea looks like the Great Barrier Reef that's beautiful and blue and clear. Um, so there's a lot of uh, technology that goes into these these kits that they send subsea. So in the industry, they're called ROVs. We think about them as remotely operated vehicles. And Video Ray makes uh, a couple of different models, but they're in the inspection class. So there's a couple of different ones. There's like your your hobbyist that looks like kind of a you know a drone that's smaller. Then you have the inspection class ROVs, which is what Video Ray makes that are like twenty to forty pounds or so. You know about the size of I don't know like a cooler, like a Yeti cooler or something like that. And then you go to the next level of things, which is like an intervention and work class ROVs. And work class ROVs can be the size of a truck. They're they're freaking huge. Uh, but these these pieces of kit that they have, they can do all kinds of things. They can inspect things visually. They can inspect with sonar. They can have put manipulators, little hands on them. They can grab things off the floor or off the seafloor. They can test with uh, you know NDT probes, so you can check the thickness of metal. You can check cathodic protection on things, which is basically the kind of me metal blocks you put subsea to combat the seawater and alkaline um, steel interact or metal interactions. So they can do a lot of things. If you're if you're on an SOV offshore or on any kind of construction vessel, these little ROVs are out there. They're they're watching rock dumps to make sure that they're land in the right place. They're watching uh, cable inspection. They're doing cable inspections. They're watching cable hookups. Sometimes the work class ROV is down there and the inspection class is standing off just to watch what they're doing. They're mapping things. They can map, map rock dumps, map the, the surface of the, of the floor. They can do visual inspections. They can create 3D uh, models of monopiles and uh, all kinds of things subsea. So they're, they're very powerful tools. Um, I think that Video Ray's got about 4,000 of them. When I was in oil and gas, Video Ray was a company that you thought of all the time. Hey, we got to get this inspection class ROV. Yeah, grab one of those Video Ray. Boom, throw that on board. That was something we always use. They're using the defense space, oil and gas, civil construction, everything offshore, inspecting nuclear plants, all kinds of cool stuff. Um, so think of them as a, a drone in the sky, but underwater. However, they're much more advanced. Uh, Video Ray is starting to use AI to do station keeping and model building and inspections. Because if you're driving down a pipeline with a ROV, you're just going pipe joint, pipe joint. Oh, a little bit of free span there. It's very monotonous and very uh, manual for, for the operator to do. But with AI, now you can uh, automate a lot of those tools. So uh, the, the, the last bit I would say here, and this is a, a, an idea, because we're always looking for what could be better in the wind industry, what's innovation, what's cool. If I was an inspection company that had people mobilized around the world with drones inspecting blades, cells, transition pieces offshore, which are part of regular tenders now, I would also start to include inspecting subsea at the same time. And here's the reason. You're already there. You already have specialized employees out there. And the vessel is standing by while you fly with the drone. You might as well throw the ROV overboard and do the subsea portion of the inspection at the same time. Now you can deliver the client value add. So you've got an inspection from the tip of the blade all the way to the sea floor, and you're using the same people and the same vessel time. And that's the big thing that costs offshore. So if you want to do that as an inspection company, call me, I'll walk you through. So it sounds like there could be some acquisitions in the, uh, the in remote inspection space. There should be. And if and it, yeah, this is the big thing too, like if you're, if you're, uh, company that has a platform 
that's looking at assets that, you know, you have like, like SkySpec says the nice horizons platform or, you know, everybody at perceptual robotics has their platform and Zeitview has their platform and Fred has their platform. You should be putting in an, a module in that to manage that sub C data at the same time. And if you want to stay abreast of all the cool technology pieces in the wind industry in 2024, you better get the Q4 edition of PES win from 2023 because it is full of cool technology and uh, it has a, a lot about what's about to happen. So you're going to see a lot of technology in PES win in this latest edition. You'll see it out in the field uh, coming up in a couple of months when it warms up, up, up in the Northern Hemisphere. So check it out. You can go to PESwin.com. You can get a, a free uh, download and you can read about all the things we, we talk about in the podcast. Uh, back in November, the Department of Energy proposed a rule to speed up environmental reviews for some renewable energy projects. Uh, the proposal would have, does expand exclusions that allow faster review of projects with minimal environmental impacts. Now, there's a number of projects or project types that would apply here to solar arrays, power line upgrades, batteries, flywheel storage systems, things that are pretty much neutral in the environment and have shown uh, uh, years of history of doing such. The one item that is not in that list is wind turbines. And I think basically anything over 200 feet tall uh, applies where you have to get the environmental impact done, even though that has been accomplished at this point, Joel, hundreds of times in the United States. And there really hasn't been any issue. Uh, but they, the DOE kept uh, the environmental reviews the way that they have been historically for wind projects. And I think the wind industry has got to scratch their head about this because there was an opportunity to make the process simpler, and they decided not to do it. So they gave it to solar on some level, and they gave it to power lines. Fine, just power lines. However, come on, it, let's. <laughs> what what has wind energy done to deserve the the uh, this? They they should have been able to use the the history of wind projects being cited and installed and they have years of data 20 plus years really of data why would they not shorten the time period these environmental reviews happen to me it seems like there's an easy way to do this right like if you if you have uh, a categorization that you fall under with certain citing rules and design rules operational rules if you fit in that box you shouldn't have to go for this extra different kind of doe big big uh play i think that rule if you're going to have in, uh, intense rules or if you want to really regulate something and it's on say blm land you know like bureau of land management federal land or something of that sort i can understand that that's public land that has public interest to it um but if pub private entities are building on private land uh for the good of the environment or the you know the, for the good of the the public i don't see why there should be long queue lines and, and intense rules for that. Phil, does this make sense with everything else that's happening in the DOE and the Treasury Department trying to speed up wind industry development and installation of wind turbines? This is one of the roadblocks. Every time for every project, this is one of the roadblocks. It just eats up a bunch of time. And remember back to my infamous rant last year about you know, how all these projects, based on that study that was done by um, Columbia University, there's, you know, 45 states that have some kind of regulation on or restriction on uh, 
wind and solar development. And so the fact that we've never had cohesive and unified federal policy that allows for a consistent permitting application review process, uh, we've never had, you know, with the exception of rules that have been established for um, what's done on, on public lands. Uh, but again, that's not a streamlined process like we're talking about. I mean, the fact that they would streamline the process for other things, but not wind, I really don't get it. I mean, we're now six or approaching 7% probably by the end of 2023 now, um, of the, you know, domestic electricity production and generation in, in the United States. Uh, I mean, you know, we're still at this point bigger than solar. Uh, although they're catching up quick. Uh, but, <laughs> I mean, what, what do we have to do? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't understand why the DOE is not having this discussion internally or why someone over there didn't say, hey, what about wind? It's a political issue. That's what, Okay, that's what I wanted to get to. The problem is, is it's a political issue because they're visible and it's a partisan issue. It's, Solar panels are visible? Yeah, it's not a technical argument anymore. It's a political argument, and that's the problem. So do you think it was left open because there's a pushback because of the size of the turbines and some at some point you know, we can have another Ted Kennedy situation where uh, a senator can just essentially stop it uh, in their backyard? Is that is that what this is about? Because this is getting to be a little ridiculous. And and if but that should that doesn't prohibit states from from blocking projects on their own, right? They totally can, and why wouldn't they, right? But in in places like Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, where there is a process in place at the state level, what and have they have historical data that shows they can develop these projects without all these environmental reviews? Then what are we doing? It's confusing to me. It even goes farther than re than environmental reviews as well, because I read an article today that stated Avant Grid was going to buy PNM, and they backed out of it because PNM did not get regulatory approval of for the acquisition. So is that what they anticipate that the feds would object to the acquisition, and so they they were just hedging their bets that it's just going to take, or 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 they just felt like it's going to be a long time for the reviews to go through. It's already been they've been working on this for four years or five years already. So is, does that mean that the Fed at the federal level, it's taking too long? Like it's been four or five years and they haven't gotten all the paperwork through that they needed to? Is that what that what this all indicates? I think there's probably a back room. There was a back room discussion that was basically like, this isn't going to happen. So they pulled the plug. And it's like, there's, there's articles like from June, April, June, July of this year that are like, we this is going to be this is going to happen this is going to be fantastic uh merger's going to go through and then she gone what's the objection here it's just the size of the project of the exchange and the the resulting company is that what it is or is it is it bigger than that some of these acquisitions and mergers how they're not getting through the sec the article today was reuters ebrdrola ebrdrola's avangrid so avangrid terminates 8.3 billion dollar deal to buy PM resources. They terminated it today. And there's no reason given. It's it says because it could not get all the necessary regulatory approvals to close the deal by December 31st. Wow. Delays it from the federal probably FERC and someone else or regulatory. What would what else would regulatory be in that SEC maybe? Sure, that that would have to be a part of the review process, right? Just because of the size of the transaction. 
and who's involved and it's an energy transaction. The deal worth $4.3 billion excluding debt was unanimously approved by PNM's board in 2020 and was expected to create a renewable energy operator with a combined market value topping $20 billion. There's going to be a lot of transactions happening in the next 24 months from what I can tell. And if, if there's going to be a regulatory hurdle, then a, a lot of them are going to be stuck. And that's, this is not the time for that to happen. What would be the concern? I don't. There's been so many other transactions across the world at the moment in renewable energy. Why that one? Again, is, is it politics, Phil? Well, yeah, part of it, but that was going to be my point is I could see them putting the kibosh on a deal if it was like a Chinese parent company was coming in and trying to buy something, but this is a Spanish company that's a huge utility and basically the biggest uh, owner operator of renewable energy in the world. So I don't, I don't get it. They backed out on a couple of offshore wind projects in the state of Massachusetts. But they, they just released that report about how many jobs they created, so everybody should be excited. They created more union jobs than expected. There is a big discussion about that in the state of Massachusetts because it has maybe created some union jobs, but it's squished some non-union jobs, and there's the port and the people around the port aren't super happy because a lot of people coming from the outside, outside that area. More to come there, I'm sure. And, and uh, you know, the thing, thing, same thing's happened in New York. It's going to happen in New Jersey. It's going to happen up and down the East Coast of the United States as uh, they, they try to show jobs because this is, hey, welcome to 2024. There's going to be 10 plus months of this as good paying union jobs. How many times are you going to hear that in the next 10 months? That's just part of it, right? It, that everybody's trying to show their credentials that they have created uh, union jobs for these offshore wind projects, whether they have or not, unclear. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. We'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.